Well, good morning, church. Uh, over the next two weeks, over two sermons, I want to focus in on just four words found at the very end of Luke chapter 10, verse 27. And those four words are, your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor as yourself. So this morning, I want to preach on these first two words, your neighbor, and then next week, Lord willing, I'll preach on the next two words, as yourself. Now, if we zoom out from these four words, um, here in Luke chapter 10 to get the context, we see that these words were spoken in a conversation between Jesus and a lawyer. And the idea behind these words was that just as we are to love the Lord, we should love our neighbor also. And then Jesus told this lawyer a parable, uh, a little story to show him what this kind of love for neighbor should look like. Um, now, when we hear the term lawyer, we probably think of, you know, like uh, an attorney or someone who practices civil law. Uh, but this lawyer was not that kind of lawyer uh, because the Greek term nomikos, lawyer, actually referred to someone who was an expert in the Old Testament law. So this lawyer was more of a Bible scholar, if anything, because his expertise was in the law contained in Scripture. Um, so we can think of him as kind of a scripture lawyer, okay? Um, and over and over again in the Gospels, the lawyers are shown to be close buddies with the Pharisees who were skeptics and enemies of Jesus. And the parable Jesus tells the lawyer is probably one of the best known parables today, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's interesting to me that even in our post-Christian culture, uh, most people, even if they've never read the Bible, have at least an idea about what it means to be a good Samaritan, right? Uh, we see this in the news all the time. You know, someone goes out of their way to help someone in need, and the news calls that person a good Samaritan. We see this, we see this all the time. But here's the problem. This parable is not merely about helping those in need. There is a point of this parable that is profoundly deeper than is often understood. And real love for neighbor is far more complex an issue than it appears at face value. And that's why I am so excited to be here this morning to talk about this more. But before we do, let's pray and ask God just to bless our time here this morning. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy inspired, inerrant word. Lord, help us to see what you want us to see this morning, and Lord, open our hearts and our minds to understand it fully for your glory. Amen. So, Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer, we know who this is, stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Sounds like a good question. And it is, but, but look what the text says. It says that the lawyer asked Jesus this question to put him to the test. Now, what does that mean? Well, this is a little bit like what I've done, uh, particularly with Mormons, because they claim to know Jesus and that their beliefs are biblical, and so I've asked them, okay, how can I be saved? And I've asked that question a bit 
insincerely uh, to simply put them to the test that I can take their answer and then hold it up to scripture and then show them where I, I see it doesn't really line up. And it seems like kind of a similar thing was happening here with the lawyer and Jesus. And here's why the lawyer asked that question. If you've read the Gospels, you see that Jesus, when he begins his public ministry, claims to be sent from God. But then, he's seen associating with and even befriending sinners. And the lawyers and Pharisees thought, this Jesus can't possibly be sent from God because none of God's people would ever associate with those people, those sinners. And so, the lawyer asked Jesus a good question. He says, all right, Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Hoping to trap him in his words because how do you think the lawyer expects Jesus, the friend of sinners, to respond? Well, he probably expects Jesus to say something like, well, you know, God is a God of love and, and he just accepts everybody as they are and everyone will be saved in the end. That's probably what he expects Jesus to say. But what does Jesus say? Well, he does what all good teachers do and answers his question with a question of his own. Verse 26, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus is saying, you tell me. You're the law expert. Verse 27, and the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So here the lawyer cites a section of Deuteronomy chapter six, which is often called the Shema, and which was recited by faithful Jews twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And he also cited the command from Leviticus chapter 19, 18, which says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love God, love neighbor. It's a perfect summary of the law's demands. In fact, this is precisely how the Ten Commandments are divided. Commands one through four address loving God, and commands five through 10 address loving neighbor. So the lawyer gives a perfect answer. Verse 38, or sorry, 28. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. And right then, Jesus' words should have caused the lawyer to think about whether he really loved God and people as he ought, or if he just had the correct answers about loving God and people. And maybe, upon reflection, the lawyer would have been caused to see just how far he fell short of real love. But that's not what happened. Verse 29. But he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So the lawyer is saying, love God, I got that, and and love neighbor, of course, and who exactly is my neighbor? Who, Who exactly do I need to love? And the lawyer is seeking to justify himself. He wants to make sure he can confidently check off the love neighbor box by loving the right people who belong in his neighbor category. But there are a couple problems here. Number one, the lawyer doesn't know this yet, but his neighbor category 
is a whole lot bigger than he knows and is probably comfortable with. And number two, the lawyer doesn't seem to understand that love for neighbor cannot be the means to some other end. Love for neighbor is an end in itself. Meaning the lawyer is missing the point and the heart of God's law and doesn't understand that, as one commentator puts it, love for neighbor is the way of life for those who are saved, but not the way to life and salvation. Let me say that again. Love for neighbor is the way of life for those who are saved, but not the way to life and salvation. And you know, Jesus could have simply dismissed the lawyer right then and there and said, man, you just don't get it. Just, just go. But that's not what Jesus does. Instead, he tells them a story. So looking at verses 30 through 37, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three... Jesus asked, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. All right, so in this parable, Jesus is answering the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And this is the one question we're gonna look at this morning, okay? So, the parable begins with a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the lawyer would have immediately known the very road Jesus was talking about. It was an 18-mile stretch of road that would take a person from Jerusalem down and east through the mountains on a steep and rocky mountain pass that was definitely sketchy in some places all the way to Jericho. But what you need to know is that this road through the mountains was created because the Jews didn't want to travel to Samaria, just to the north, on a much better road to get there. So this road through the mountains was created intentionally to avoid Samaria. And why? Because the Jews detested the people of Samaria. The Samaritans. Here's why. About 750 years earlier, in the year 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. And as a result, most of the Israelites were exiled. They were taken away to Assyria. 
And when the Israelites were exiles in Assyria, the king of Assyria brought in other people groups who settled there, and many of them were pagans. And some of the Israelites intermarried with these pagans, and their descendants became known as the Israelites. And what was particularly bad about that was that these Samaritan descendants kept some of the Old Testament doctrines, but also blended together with them some pagan elements, such as idol worship. It's called syncretism, the mixing or combining of different beliefs. Not good. And so faithful Jews saw the Samaritans as being unclean, corrupt, and treasonous to the one true God for polluting their religion with paganism. And all of this produced a long history of hatred and warring between them. And so all of this historical information about this mountain pass from Jerusalem to Jericho and about this historical Jewish-Samaritan conflict, it all tells us that the man traveling down the road was undoubtedly a Jew, just like the lawyer. It was the Jews who created this road. It was the Jews who traveled this road. And this man in Jesus' parable was undoubtedly a Jew. And so this Jewish man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and falls among robbers who jump him and strip him of his clothes and beat him and leave him half dead in the road. And what happens next? A priest is seen coming down the road. Thank goodness, a priest. Someone you'd expect to come and help. But what happens? When the priest comes down the road and sees the man, he passes by on the other side. He actually goes out of his way to avoid the man in the road. But then a Levite is seen coming down the road. Now, priests and Levites were from the same tribe of Israel, the tribe of Levi, and like the priests, the Levites were, you know, good religious people that you'd expect to come and help. But what happens? He comes down the road and he passes by on the other side, just like the priest, going out of his way to avoid the man in the road. Wow. Not even a priest or a Levite will stop to help. And what's the point? Well, the point is, we're supposed to look at these two good religious guys and be appalled by their actions. We're supposed to look at them and say, that's wrong. They should have done something. We're, we're supposed to condemn their utter disregard for this helpless man. But in doing so, do we not condemn ourselves also? Because aren't we sometimes just like them? At least in some way or another? Well, we usually think of ways to justify ourselves and we say things like, well, it's not my problem and I'm just gonna mind my own business. Or, well, someone else will probably help them or, well, they brought this upon themselves. They probably deserve it. Or, well, I've got my own problems and burdens. I couldn't possibly bear theirs also. Or, 
well, I'm not sure how this would make me look and what others would think of me if I associate with them. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a place for real discernment in how we choose to help people, but we are wrong to not condemn ourselves right along with the priest and the Levite for the ways that we have wrongly tried to justify what is really just coldness and unlovingness in our hearts toward those in need. But thank goodness that this story doesn't end there because Jesus then gives a quite unexpected twist to this story because who's coming down the road now but a Samaritan? Whoa, the Jew's mortal enemy. This could get interesting. And I wonder if the lawyer was expecting the Samaritan in this story to maybe spit on the Jew as he walked on by or maybe go up to him and mock him before he died or maybe even go finish the job that the robbers started. But what happens? Verse 33 says, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Notice the radical way the Samaritan was moved to love for this man in the road. He saw him. He saw him, that's all he did. Now, we all know there's a difference between seeing something and seeing something, right? Like when we passively see something, but we don't really look at it, we don't really think about it, we don't really care about it, and we move on. But sometimes we actively see something, and we look at it intently, and we think about it deeply, and we care about it truly, and we cannot move on because it has touched something within us and is moving us to action. When the Samaritan saw him, he looked, and he thought, and he cared. And something in his heart burned within him, and he was moved to rescue his mortal enemy. And what did he do? Did he pick him up and brush him off and then continue on his way? No. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine onto them. And he set him on his own animal, probably a donkey or a mule. And he walked with him and the animal to an inn and took care of him. And he stays with him overnight because then it says the next day, the Samaritan took out two denarii, which are two days working wages, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So the Samaritan's gonna come back and check up on the guy too? Wow. The Samaritan never stopped and thought about how this man wasn't his problem. Never stopped and thought that perhaps someone else would help him. Never stopped and thought that perhaps he shouldn't help him because he probably deserved it. Never stopped and thought about how much of a burden this man might be to him. Never stopped and thought about how this would make him look or what people would think of him. When he saw this helpless man in the road, he never stopped to ask, now, who is my neighbor? Or, wait a minute, does this man belong in my neighbor category? 
The answer Jesus' parable was giving to the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor, was anyone in need. Anyone in need. And there are certain things that we all need, one of which is love. And real love for neighbor, for anyone in need, will cross religious boundaries, social boundaries, racial boundaries, and and why? Because it's a love that just can't be restrained. It can't be kept back and just finds itself being poured out and touching those in need. It's the kind of real, genuine love that could move a person to rescue even his mortal enemy. And so Jesus asks the lawyer, verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And it's an obvious answer, the Samaritan. But look, the lawyer can't even say his name. Verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So the obvious hero of this parable is the Samaritan. And he's the model of real love for neighbor that the lawyer was to emulate. But we can't go there too quickly. We can't go there too quickly. Let me explain why. And to do that, we have to talk briefly about hero stories, okay? Hero stories. For thousands of years, mankind has been telling all kinds of hero stories. Stories about overcoming monsters, where a monster appears and then a hero emerges who prepares to confront the monster. But then he finally meets the monster and seems completely outmatched and almost loses to it. But then in the end, he overcomes and defeats the monster and uh, gets the girl or gets the treasure or saves the kingdom. Or stories about going from rags to riches, where, you know, an underdog type of hero steps out into the world and starts to become successful, only to see everything go completely wrong. But then he finds a deep inner strength within himself and finally makes something of himself, or finally wins someone's affection, or finally accomplishes something great. Or stories about quest and adventure, where A hero gets word of a better place or a better land and journeys to go find it. And along the way, he encounters many dangers and discouragements that threaten to throw him off his course. But he eventually overcomes all obstacles and reaches the better place and completes the quest. And the reason mankind produces these kinds of hero stories is because we seem to connect with them so deeply And it's because they give us a kind of hope. A a hope that it's possible, possible for us to overcome the monsters in our life, whatever they are. Or a hope that it's possible for us to move from rags to riches, whatever that looks like. Or a hope that it's possible for us to complete our quest, whatever that quest may be. And in every story, you're invited to enter into the world of the hero who faces a monster just like you, or who has nothing but rags just like you, or who is in a bad place just like you, or 
who is the underdog just like you or who needs to escape just like you or who wants to find love just like you. And we trace the path of the hero and we learn from the hero and we celebrate with the hero because in a sense, the hero is you. Or at least the hero is the embodiment of what we think we could become. And so we live vicariously through these heroes in the hope that one day that's who I'll be. I'll be more like that. These are the kinds of stories we've been telling for thousands of years. However, sorry, I scared some of you there. However, for thousands of years, the Bible has been telling very different kinds of stories. Stories where every hero usually proves to really be kind of an anti-hero, a still fallen, sinful human being, just like the rest of us. Stories where we're probably supposed to identify more with the damsel in distress, or the villain, or even the monster itself. Stories where we discover not the power to become the rescuer, but our need to be rescued. In every case, the stories of the Bible tell us over and over and over that we are not the hero. We are not the hero. Now, if you extract the parable of the Good Samaritan from the Bible, it's that you just have the bare story itself, no other details, no historical information, no context here in Luke, just the bare story itself, then it might be a simple hero story where you're supposed to identify with the hero. But look at this. Jesus made every effort in the telling of this parable to ensure that the lawyer would see so clearly who he was supposed to identify with. And that's why he made the hero in the story to be a Samaritan, the Jew's mortal enemy one that the lawyer would not be able to identify with, in whose name he couldn't even say. And that's why Jesus made the priest and the Levite to be such minor characters that just walk right by and out of the story completely. And that's why he made the man traveling the road to be Jewish, like the lawyer. And that's why he was traveling on this mountain pass that intentionally avoided Samaria, which exposed the Jews' prejudice against their Samaritan neighbors. And that's why he wound up laying in the road, naked and helpless and nearly dead, which was a picture of the lawyer's spiritual state. See, when the Samaritan rescued this naked, helpless, dying Jew, it was an enemy becoming a friend. It was radical grace that this man did not deserve from him. It was doing for the man what he could not do for himself. It was 
It was giving life to a man who would otherwise perish. It was clothing, covering this man's nakedness and shame. It, it was probably the greatest act of love this man had ever experienced. It was a picture of the gospel. It was a picture of the gospel. It seems the lawyer was meant to identify with the man in the road. That was him. Now, I know, what be, you, I know what you may be thinking. You're thinking, how is it that the lawyer is supposed to identify with the man in the road, but Jesus clearly tells him at the end of the parable to emulate the Samaritan? Well, I think it's the same way that we don't get to identify as the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus, but he is our perfect example to emulate, and we want to become more and more like Jesus. But unfortunately, it doesn't seem like the lawyer really got it because we never see the lawyer admitting his failures or confessing his weakness or even acknowledging his inability to love like that Samaritan. He never does that. There's no evidence that the lawyer recognized his need for God's grace at all. And that's the first thing this parable should have caused him to see with such a stellar example of love that surely was not characteristic of the self-justifying lawyer, but could only be characteristic of someone who was truly selfless, right? Maybe the lawyer heard the parable as so many of us have, as just a call to double down on our efforts and to just try harder to be more loving and to help those in need because, you know, that's what good people should do. But if that's how the lawyer heard this parable, and if that's how we hear this parable, our hearts will not be changed, and we will not become more loving. Guaranteed. In fact, one commentator says this. He says, if that is your only response to this parable, it is practically the worst response anyone could have to the lesson Jesus was teaching. Whoa. See, this is amazing. If Jesus wanted to tell the lawyer one of our kinds of hero stories, he would have put the Samaritan into the road and made the Jew to be the hero who rescued him. And the message would have been, be like the good Jew who crossed religious boundaries, social boundaries, racial boundaries to show kindness and to help someone in need. You can be like him. But the message Jesus was giving this lawyer was something much, much better and something much, much deeper than any merely moralizing, be like this person kind of message. Jesus gave him something that could truly change him if he really understood it. And that message was this. If you were rescued in your helplessness, by someone who owed you nothing but scorn and rejection, but showed you love anyways, you'd be profoundly changed. And you'd start to look at everyone differently, as people no different than you before you were saved. And as people helplessly in need, just as you were. And as people you might have the privilege to love, just as you were loved your heart would then be moved to love your neighbor in need. In other words, 
Jesus was saying to really become a neighbor in the, in the truest sense, which isn't based on a virtuous, self-justifying duty ethic, but based on genuine love. To really become a neighbor, you need to first receive a neighbor. But not just any neighbor. You need the great neighbor. The one who left his heavenly kingdom, entered into our world, and provided a way of rescue and salvation through himself. You need Jesus, the speaker of the parable himself. Like the Good Samaritan, Jesus saw us in our helpless state, laying in the road, as it were, and he came to us. But Jesus didn't just come to be a friend or to rescue us from the physical ills or pains of this life. He came to save us from our sin, which separates us from relationship with the Holy God and leads to death. Jesus took that sin upon himself and carried out our death sentences on a cross so that we, through faith, might receive his righteousness and walk free, guiltless, and justified. And Jesus was then buried in a tomb but rose three days later proving that he was the possessor of the power of a life that is stronger than death itself. And then Jesus ascended into heaven where he promised to prepare a place for his people and to come back to bring them there to be with him forever. And today, Jesus holds and carries his people in his arms of grace such that they will never fall into the road ever again. Jesus is the only neighbor through whom we can be forgiven of sin and made clean and have life in God and have access to God and have an eternal relationship with God and praise God that Jesus didn't just give us stories or commands or concepts or principles or philosophies but that he gave us himself and that he gives us himself. The kinds of stories we need are not the ones that inflate our prideful sense of the hero within, but we need those stories that move us to look beyond ourselves and outside of ourselves to Jesus, who is the only hero and whose word and gospel and spirit is the only power to rescue us and to save us and to change us more and more into what we were created to be. The truth is we can't even begin to face the monsters in our life until we've learned that Jesus has already defeated the ultimate monster, our own sin. And we can't even begin to move from rags to riches until we've understood that we must trade our filthy rags for the riches of God's grace and the royal robe of Christ's righteousness. And we can't even begin to complete our quests in life until we've understood that that better place is ours already because Jesus has already earned our salvation and he is just calling us to walk in that victory every day. And we cannot even begin to become better lovers of neighbor until we've understood that we need a neighbor we need someone to rescue us from the road. 
before that happens, will we have the proper motivation or even the ability to then go out and help others in need? We need the great neighbor, Jesus. In each case, we see that the power is not within us to win or to change or to achieve or to become the hero. Rather, the power is in Christ who has already won our victory, who can change us by his grace, who has achieved all things for us and who is the only hero. It doesn't appear that the lawyer ever really got this but if he did, I think he would have been radically changed and his heart would have been moved to love his neighbor in need. He would have received a neighbor. He would have received God's grace. He would have received Christ's perfect righteousness which has fulfilled the demands of the law already. He would have been moved to love. And so, We must be changed. We must be saved from the road. And we must be moved by a power outside of ourselves to really love our neighbors, even those who are very different than us, even those who we're unfamiliar with, even those who we're uncomfortable with, even strangers, even enemies, even those who to love them would be of great burden and maybe cost to us? Every one of them is a neighbor. And every one of them needs a neighbor. And at one point in our lives, we were no different than them. And Jesus came to us. So this morning, we've set the foundation. We've answered the who question. Who is our neighbor? And it's anyone in need. And in another sense, it's Jesus himself, the great neighbor. And next week, we're gonna get a bit more practical and we're gonna look at this how question. How can we become better lovers of neighbor? And we'll also look at one of the biggest obstacles to being able to do that. Right now, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Lord God, thank you for sending your own son to rescue and save us in our helplessness our need, our sinfulness. Lord, thank you that the great love with which you have loved us, thank you for that love, a love that laid down his life for his friends. Oh Lord, may may that same love move us to love our neighbor in need. All those who are no different than us, when we were in need, and Lord, when You looked upon us with such compassion and came to save us. Lord, may our love reflect something of that by your grace. We ask this in your name. Amen.